0: So we're in between a series here. We finished the parables or finished the parables that we're going to do for the summer, and we're starting a new series uh, next week, which I'll explain, but I had a moment to just put a sermon in, and I've been wanting to talk about this one, and so 2 Kings chapter 5 is this unusual story about Naaman, a commander in the Syrian army, a general, and his intersection with with the Lord, really. And so 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1 through verse 14. So let's stand together as we read God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because of him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus and so spoke to the girl from the land of Israel and the king of Syria said... Now go, and I will, let, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. I don't know what it's like for you at the end of the summer, uh, but for me, it's sort of this one last moment to recalibrate, to take some time off uh, in August and unplug, and maybe you do the same, some some last long weekend maybe, maybe a whole week of vacation where you you sort of unplug, and then you try to recalibrate, because you know you're diving into a new fall season, and for many of you... Is somehow connected to school. You're diving into this new school season. And when you're in that space where you've unplugged, you, you, you tend to ask questions like okay, so what are my goals for the year? Uh, what direction am I heading in? And, and is it the right direction? And, and what am I primarily about? Those are the questions that that I ask myself when I spend some time away in August. But I'm not just asking myself that question as the pastor of the church. I'm I'm asking that question for the church. Those kinds of questions: Are we heading in the right direction? Um, uh, what are we primarily all about? And every August, when I take that time off, I circle back around to the same conclusion, and that is: What drives Christ Community Church forward? What What we're all about is this unwavering belief that the gospel is the power of God. And that gospel can transform anyone's life. And God has decided that his people, the church, play a role in that transformation. So I I keep coming back to this same same basic principle or same basic core belief and that is the gospel is the power of god and that power is so great it can change it can transform any person there's nobody outside of the the love and the boundaries of god and that unbelievably god has said i've given you the the church a task you're you have a role to play you actually play a role In that transformation process. And perhaps there's no better picture of that core belief than this unusual story we find in 2 Kings chapter 5. And I really love this account. So I'm going to try to not say everything I possibly could about this story. But it's helpful to get a little background. In 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 2 Kings we find this Syrian general named Naaman who goes to the God of Israel. He's looking for help. That's basically the story. And even though we're not familiar, because we're not familiar with this political and religious tension between Syria and Israel, we don't immediately appreciate how shocking that opening line is that this guy from Syria, especially this general, this commander, that he would even come to Israel for help. It's really astonishing. Naaman's request it is so astonishing that you can't even believe that somebody like Naaman would actually be wanting or asking help. And then you can't believe that if somebody like this would go to the God of Israel to get help, it seems unlikely that the God of Israel would help somebody like Naaman. So it's really a shocking account. And Israel and Syria were these bitter political Uh, geopolitical enemies. They were constant conflict, and at the time of this particular writing, Syria sort of had the upper hand. It was dominating Israel. And you notice this odd verse uh, in chapter 1, or verse 1, it says, Even the Lord had given victory to Syria. The God of Israel somehow had given victory through Naaman to Syria over his own people. And so there's this tension, and part of the tension here is because this one brilliant military leader that everybody knew about, his name was Naaman. And so when the great military commander shows up at the doorstep of the king, it's so shocking that he's looking for help. Notice the king's response in verse 7. He tears his clothes, and he says, am I God? I mean, I can't possibly help somebody like you. And plus, I don't even think you're looking for help. I think this is like a plot. It's a ploy. You're, you're, causing, you're trying to create some sort of false uh, argument so that we can get back engaged in a, a military battle. I think this is all sort of some kind of undercover operation. And so the king of Israel is just dismissing Naaman out of hand. Naaman is a powerful military general for the enemy. And if you would read a little bit further in the chapter to verse 18, you see that he actually worships another god, Rimon, R-I-M-N-O-N. And nobody's quite sure who that is, but it's the god of the sun or the god of the elements. And so he worships a different god. And it just can't be true that Naaman is looking for real help from Yahweh. The God of Israel. It just can't be true that he's looking for real help. So so in your mind, who would be like the most unlikely person to come and sort of wander in the back of the church and sit in the back row today? Who's the person that you think, gosh, if he or she, if they showed up, wow, I can't believe they would ever come to church. That's Naaman. And he wanders into the king's presence, and he's he's looking for help. And I want to break down this event into three different parts. First, I want to see the way the world works. Then I want to see the way we work, the way the church, the people of God, are supposed to work. And then, finally, the way God works. I want to spend most of the time just looking at the way the world works, to understand that, to understand Naaman. Then we want to see how we're supposed to work, the people of God, and then finally and briefly, the way God works, the way the world works. I want to notice just two things here. First, it works by empty promises. Or I sort of subtitled this as I was thinking about it. Uh, My subtitle was, He Who Dies With The Most Toys Wins. You've seen that bumper sticker, haven't you? And I always wondered, I mean, I never quite got that bumper sticker. The reason I never quite got it is like I thought, Well, the problem is that you die and your toys don't help. I mean, so I'd never quite figured out how that was helpful. But nonetheless, uh, one of the way the the world works is that that it's based on a lie. And it was spoken in Genesis chapter 3, and it's echoed through the quarters of time since Genesis chapter 3. And it goes something like this. It sounds something like this. If you accumulate enough stuff, you'll be satisfied. There's some place, it's usually just out of your reach, just over the next hill, just just at the edge of the horizon, that if you just reached that one place, if you got to that one point, then you'd be happy, and then you'd be self-sufficient. There is something that if you could just reach out and grab it and if you had that thing, then you'd be satisfied, you'd be happy, you'd be self-sufficient. That's a lie starting in Genesis 3, and is echoed now all the way through human history. And I know you're familiar with it. And then notice in verse 1, you see how these empty promises have worked on Naaman. This great opening line. The writer just immediately piles up these accomplishments or achievements of of Naaman. And who wouldn't want his resume? Listen, he's a commander of a powerful army. He's known as a great man. He's in high favor. When he comes back from victory, the ticker tape parade is is for Naaman. Everybody is glad he's on their side. He was a mighty man of valor. That basically means he's like a superhero. He's Iron Man, he's Superman, he's Spider-Man, he's whoever that superhero is. He has such, such qualities as a leader and as a strong man that he has this sort of superhero status. He's a, a mighty man of valor. And in verse 5 we read that all this military leadership has churned up a lot of money. He's also a very wealthy man. So he's very powerful He's extremely well-known, he's extremely gifted, and he has a lot of wealth. So I'm raising my hand for that resume. But the problem at the end of that verse is there's there's just one little, little problem. It's in the small print of the resume. In the original Hebrew language, it's just one word. It's not even a phrase. It just gets to the end of the resume and then says leper. In all likelihood, the leprosy was limited to just one spot at this point in Naaman's life. It's it's easily hidden by the medals on his chest and the money in his pocket. But, but Naaman knows. Naaman knows what leprosy is, a skin disease, and it spreads. You can't stop it. And it moves to your extremity so you can't hide it. And Naaman knows that his condition is going to worsen. It's going to quickly spread. Everyone's going to know it. He can't, He's not going to be able to hide it for, by his medals or his money. And when people know, then it becomes isolating. And eventually it causes your death. And so Naaman is in this particular situation. And I loved how Tim Keller views this he says this Naaman's leprosy represents the reality that success can't deliver the satisfaction we're looking for see Naaman has it all but he's not satisfied and that that's one of the lessons here is that you can have it all but there's still some kind of spot on your soul you never quite reach that point where you're you're happy that you're You're self-sufficient. That's the way the world works. It constantly bombards you with this empty promise that if you just have this one more thing, oh, if I just could get through this one particular issue, if I could get by this one thing, whatever it is, you can fill in your own blank. Then everything would be smooth. Everything would be worked out. I'd be successful. I'd be self-sufficient. Pop legend Madonna In an interview in a magazine with such a great name, Vanity Fair, says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My life, my my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. It's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. See, here's a person that from the world standpoint has it all, but she's not driven by joy. She's driven by fear. Fear that somebody might discover that she's not really anybody, that she's uninteresting, that she's mediocre. See, there's always some kind of spot on the soul that the world can't remove. Last week, I was uh, driving around on Saturday. I was listening to some kind of radio show, and there there was an article they were reading. And, look, I don't, you know, you hear stuff, you're not sure it's true, but they're reading this article from a magazine, and they were talking about how uh, plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery, the, the uptick over the last several years, not, wasn't, that wasn't surprising. They said, hey, then they broke it down to see what was the percentage increase in different, demographic, different demographics, you know, age or male, female. And so they sort of asked on the radio show, which demographic do you think would have the most percentage increase? And I'm driving around saying 40 to 50-year-old women. That's my guess. That's the largest percentage increase. And the, the host said, reading from the article, no, it was 20s females. And then just sort of trying to guess why. Why why would 20-year-old females have the largest percentage increase and again this wasn't scientific it's just the guess of the person the researcher saying they think it's because of selfies that people take so many pictures of themselves and they don't like what they see and so they go to the cosmetic surgeon saying I'd like a better picture of myself isn't that amazing you're not surprised by that are you I mean it's horrifying in one way but it's not surprising because if you just had one more spot removed if, 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 if your face looked just like this, if, if you could just have this one thing somehow you'd, you, you would have arrived but you never arrive. You, you never become what you hope that you had become. You never feel like I'm, I'm somebody and if you do it It doesn't last very long. So in the end, achievement or success can't really answer the big questions. Unfortunately, Naaman had believed the lie for a long time. But listen, fortunately for Naaman, he gets leprosy. I want to be real careful that you hear that. Eternally, fortunately for Naaman... He gets leprosy because the leprosy causes him to look in a different direction. He would have never looked in a different direction. He would have kept charging after this one particular direction, but something that he can't cure intersects his life. And he says, I've got to look elsewhere. This sun god isn't taking care of my skin problem. The medals and the money on my chest aren't going to be able to cover my real issue. And so he begins to look in another direction. And, and you know, many of you know, that's a very common testimony, is it not? You were moving in some sort of direction. You had a dream. You had a goal. And it got shattered. And whatever you had hoped is it's now not possible for it to work out. And the death of that idol begins to be the birth of looking for something that will last. Second problem, the way or the way the world works is not uh, just through this looking for satisfaction, but this poisonous pride. It's good that Naaman gets leprosy so he can look in a different direction. That's good. But what we must notice here in this story is how he tries to import his old ways into dealing with his leprosy. He's just saying, I have an old set of ways. I have a problem that can't work. So I'm going to take these ways and I'm going to import it into dealing with my leprosy. He tries to use external means to fix this internal problem. And it's, a, it's so easy for us to do. You know that Naaman's physical problem has a spiritual application to each of us. Leprosy is this picture of, of a problem that each of us suffer. It's a terminal illness. It spreads. It's isolating. It eventually causes our death. And the Bible describes that as as sin. And it doesn't matter what our riches are, and it doesn't matter what our resume are. is. We just can't get enough to, to breach that separation from God. And so, thankfully, it's always a good first step to say, I've got a problem, and the world can't fix it. I've got to look in a different direction. But I want you to notice how Naaman imports his self-sufficiency to his search for salvation. Because many people do this. They take the ways of the world. They realize it's not working out. So they take those ways and they import them into church. And this is exactly what Naaman does. And we're not surprised. I'm not beating up on Naaman. This is what many of us have done. Notice the first way, verse 5. And the king, so Naaman goes to the king and says, Hey, my wife told me this girl said something. And he said there could be help in Israel. And the king of Syria said, okay, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman first says, well, look, I've got this problem. How do I solve my problems? Usually it's through connections. I've got a good network. And so I use my network. I go to the king. He's the friend of the king. And so I'm going to use my network. I've got this problem, and maybe my network is going to solve my problem. Secondly, you see in the rest of that verse, he has great wealth. When he arrives, he expects the king of Israel to go, Whoa, whoa, wow, this guy won the lottery back in, in Syria. He's got tons of money. Look at all these people. Look at this treasure chest of gold and silver. Look at these fine suits he's got on this portable rack. Wow, he's, he, Naaman knows people are impressed by money. He expects is, uh, the king of Israel to be impressed by money. And when the king of Israel sends to him to Elijah, who lives in some little small hut in a town, and he pulls up with his entourage, he expects Elijah to be impressed by his wealth. And I love how Elijah responds. Look with, with me in verse 9. But when Elijah, this is back in verse 8, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said, hey, you send them to me. So Naaman, verse 9, came with his horses and his chariots. You need to paint a picture in your mind. Naaman comes with his horses and his chariots into this small town, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. This great military commander. He's got medals on his chest. The the treasure box is open. Coins are spilling out of it. He's got the Armani suits over here. And he comes up. Tell Elisha I'm here. And see, that's what he thinks is going to get somebody's attention. And what does Elisha do? He doesn't even get out of his club chair. Uh, yeah, servant, here's a message. Can you go out and uh, tell this guy this thing? <laughs> so imagine being a servant. Naaman explodes. He doesn't take orders from servants. You see, just... Try to think of what Naaman is trying to process here. He's saying, doesn't Elisha understand the way it works? He's supposed to be impressed with my wealth. He's supposed to be impressed with my generosity. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. I've come in some impressive fashion and he's supposed to come out of his house and like some sort of great magician he's supposed to wave his hand over a spot he's supposed to have this sort of incantation and he's supposed to do it in front of all of his people and all of my people and and then when he waves his hand I'm going to be healed and everybody's going to be impressed with him and everyone's going to marvel at me. That's That's what Naaman wants. That's the way it works in Naaman's world. He's importing his old ways of dealing into trying to find salvation, and it doesn't work that way. One reason Naaman is so upset is because anyone can go down and wash in a muddy river, a prostitute or a powerful general. (laughs) And Naaman doesn't want a God who reaches out to just anyone. He wants a God who he can reach on his own terms. So Naaman is saying, God, you've got to deal with me on my own terms. I want to God only a few people, a few well-resourced people can get to, Naaman says. See, Naaman's thinking is so completely warped by the way of the world. And wisely, Elisha sends out this servant. And the servant maybe biting his nails like, uh, general, uh... You know, nobody here is impressed with your riches or resume. No, nobody cares about it. Nobody even wants it. You could have left all that home. I mean, Elijah's not even come look at it. Uh, but what you need to do is uh, you need to take a bath in a muddy river. One, One more point here, verse 13. Naaman explodes in this rage storms off not like a general but like a two-year-old and he's not going to do it I guess he's preparing to go back home and then some of his servants and his entourage say I mean come on we've come a long way and okay he's not impressed with this but th- this is all he's asked you to do go down and wash in this muddy river and, and in the, the NIV is a better translation if he'd ask you to do some great deed you would have done it wouldn't you And Naaman's like, yeah, I would have. They should have set up like the American Ninja obstacle course for me. And I would have been the one who got through it like using one hand. And if I'd gotten through it, then some great thing would have happened. See, I would have been willing to do anything except for be humble. That's the one thing I I wasn't willing to do. Naaman has taken self-sufficiency and transferred it to self-salvation. And when people realize self-sufficiency doesn't work, very frequently they come to church and they're looking for self-salvation. And that could be happening to some of you. Naaman wants a God... He can put into his debt. And he's not looking for grace. So just for clarity, religion is about something you do. Christianity is about something God has done. It's not about what you need to accomplish. Naaman, notice in verse 14, he goes down to the river. It's not just he goes down uh, because of the topography He's got to go down in his pride. And he's got to go down and wash in this muddy river in front of everyone who brought him. Imagine that. He's got to take this bath in front of his entire entourage in order to wash away his pride. So that's the way the world works. Now, let's look at the way we work. We're supposed to work as God's people. Again, the gospel is the power of God. It has the power to transform any kind of person, even people like Naaman. And somehow, in God's design, he's given us a role to play in this transformation process. It's very easy to see see the role in this particular story because it comes up three different times. It's this idea of being a servant. Verse 10 the servant meets Naaman at Elisha's door. And he gives him instructions. That's what a servant does. I'm just here. I'm getting a word. I'm transferring it to you. I'm just delivering some information. Verse 13. The servants come to Nathan and say, "You look, you've got the instructions. Please do the instructions. And a lot of times that's the role we play. You've already been given the instructions. You're just coming alongside. You know what to do. Just do that. Do that. But perhaps most importantly, verse 2, is this little girl. She, she enters and exits so quickly. By the time you get to the end of the story, you've totally forgotten about her. She doesn't have any name. Yet if, if, if she didn't know Naaman, then Naaman would have never been healed. Try to imagine just for a moment her position. She's in Israel. There's a battle. There's a raid. Naaman wins. Capture some people, including this young girl, probably 10, 12. Take her back to Syria. She's now a slave. She ends up in the house of Naaman. She's specifically a servant, Naaman's wife. And she somehow, because she's in the household, she overhears one day, hey, the the master, the general, Naaman, the person who's enslaved you, has leprosy. Now, how might you react? I mean, not in front of the wife. But when you get back in the quarters where all the slaves are, high five. That's awesome. He deserves it. I hope he ends up in isolation just like me. I hope he ends up enslaved to this disease just like me. He's totally ruined my life. I hope this ruins his. This this is exactly how my heart beats. I hate to say. Tim Keller again says, think of it. He was now in her hands. What she knew could save him, and by withholding, she could make him suffer. But she could, make him, she could make him pay for his sins. She could make him bear the cost for what he did, yet she does not. The unsung heroine of the story, she refuses to relieve her suffering by making him pay. She forgave him and became the vehicle of healing. True forgiveness always requires a suffering servant. True forgiveness always requires a suffering servant. The little girl is the shadow of a great suffering servant who could make us pay, who would say, you are getting what you deserve, but instead, I'll suffer for your healing. And so the little girl says, even the worst kinds of people can find help from the God that I know. Now members of Christ Community Church. As you recalibrate. As you think about going back to school. Or going back to a new season. Or whatever you're moving into. These next four months. 2015. That's your role. That's my role. Is that the role you're wanting? That by the end of the story. No one even know you're a part of the story. Is that Okay. See, you don't know this girl's name, and you've forgotten about her by the time the story's in. Is that okay? Or do you need to be in the Hall of Fame for somebody? See, the role is to be a servant. And the glory goes to God. The way we're supposed to work is the way this little girl works. That even if it's our captor, we would be kind. Finally, the, the way God works, verse 14 and 15. It's, I can't even imagine the moment, the seventh time down. He comes up, the leprosy's gone. I mean, imagine the, the hooray, imagine the, the exhilaration for Naaman. Totally changes his life. It doesn't just change his leprosy, it changes his diseased heart. You notice he goes back and he calls Elisha, hey, I, now I'm your servant. You notice that change in his heart. In order for Naaman to be healed, he actually has to do something much harder than performing some great act. He has to admit there's nothing he can do. John Gerstner says this. If you want to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. And very few people have that. If you really want to become a Christian, all you need is nothing. But but very few people have nothing. They come out from the world saying I've got to have something to offer so God's going to like me. And the only way you really receive God is if you come saying I don't have anything to offer. That's what Naaman has to hear and learn. That's what you and I have to hear and learn. God works by grace not by works. Let me conclude just with the few questions here. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like Naaman. You're an unlikely candidate to be in church this morning. You're you're here because of a friend. You're here because of a parent. You're here because of some other reason. But somehow you made it into church today. And and my question is, are you willing to bring to God nothing? That in the end, it's not in any way going to be about you. It's going to be about God. Second, if you are you may have realized just in listening to this sermon that you, you do have a problem. You re, you're like Naaman. You say, I know I have this problem. And I know I need some kind of solution. But what you've done is you've been seeking God by importing the ways of the world. And you've, you've turned self-sufficiency into self-salvation. And really what you've done, you've got involved in the church and you're religious, but you're not a Christian. You know the things out there aren't working and you're hoping what you can do in here will work and really you could spend your whole life in church being religious and not a Christian. And when you show up at the end of time you're going to bring all your good deeds from church work and say that's what's going to get me in and that's not getting anybody into heaven. There's only one way. You bring nothing, he brings everything. If you're a follower of Christ, are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? That you would suffer and be nameless so somebody would be known by Jesus.